With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I remember talking to my editor, Judy Klein, after I'd finished the book, and I was we were doing some edits, and, and I told her I couldn't write any more material because I didn't know where the mind of this book had gone, and I didn't recognize anymore the person who had written it. The language, the syntax, all of it, which was so effortless during the composition, evaporated. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, we just heard the voice of Ead Akhtar, who you spoke with this week. Um, but before we get to that wonderful interview, this is the first time we've chatted since you submitted your manuscript, which is, of course, a cultural history of the method. Um, are you still thinking about Stanislavski or are you are such thoughts banned until you get it back for revisions? Uh, they are definitely not banned because, <laughs> you know, I just can't stop thinking about it. Um Things are going well. Those last two weeks were very difficult. I mean, in that I was working very hard, but they yeah. were very fun and, and you know, it was a joyous process. It was just all the time I knew exactly what I was doing. I was taking care of my kid, recording what we needed to record for working and working on the manuscript. And that was it. And there, there's a nice clarity that enters when you're that busy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm in a moment where I have no clarity. I don't <laughs> know when I'm getting notes back. I don't know what the next steps of the process look like yet. So now it's about figuring out, well, what is my day-to-day going to be? And some of that's going to include more research. Um, The subject is infinite, and (laughs) I'm sure I will be reading up on it all the way up until the book is published to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Um, But it's a lot of other stuff, too. It's free writing. I'm doing writing uh, for no clear purpose for the first time in two years, you know, and and stuff like that. I'm just trying to get back in touch with all the other parts of myself as as an artist. Amazing. Uh, this week, you spoke with Ead Akhtar. I haven't yet read or seen his work, but I feel like his name is everywhere this year. What do listeners need to know about him? Well, I think the starting point is probably his play, Disgraced, which brought him to national prominence, had a successful run on Broadway, and won the Pulitzer Prize. And it's a really tricky play. On its surface, it's one of those one couple goes to another couple's house for dinner and all hell breaks loose, a la Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? We think we know that play. Mm. But um, it's actually instead a kind of deep and complex and interesting play about identity and assimilation and self-loathing and racial anxiety. But it deals with all that in a kind of very deft uh, way. It's only 90 minutes long and it builds towards this conclusion that is kind of deeply troubling and, and, and haunting. I don't want to spoil what that is because actually one of the wonderful things about the play is that it's very readable. If you picked it up, you could read it and it wouldn't feel mind boggling the way some plays can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very easy to get one's hands on. So you should go get that and read it. He's written uh, a few other plays since um, two of them 
the invisible hand and junk are both really about the financial system and debt and its effects on America. And actually the second of those junk, you'll hear Ayad talk about, although not by name in our interview, it's the play, the reception of which kind of drove him to write Homeland Elegies. Homeland Elegies is what the bulk of our interview is about. And that is a novel that is written in the style of a memoir and its narrator and protagonist's name is Ayad Akhtar, and he shares many of Ayad's biographical details, but is not actually the same person. And he uses that framework to explore the really the Trump era and what it means to be an American in this moment from, you know, the point of view of someone who's a lot like him, the child of immigrants from Pakistan, who's a middle-aged, very successful writer, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Interesting. So Ayad writes novels and plays, and I'm having a hard time thinking of other contemporary writers who work both sides of the page, so to speak. Uh, my friend or our mutual friend, Sarah Shulman, has had plays produced off-Broadway, as well as writing novels and all kinds of other nonfiction. But she's kind of superhuman. Um, you're the theatrical expert, though. Is it as rare as I think? It is very rare. I think it's less rare in England, honestly. Um, and I think it's more often that you see people from other media turn to writing for theater, like Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers <laughs> has written for the theater. Dennis Johnson wrote a bunch of plays, um, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, I think it's more common for folks to go in that direction than yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Now, why though? Isn't writing writing, whatever the form, it, is it about something structural like needing connections in the theater world to get the things you write produced? You know, we talk about this a bit in the interview, mm. but frankly, no, I am not sure that writing is just writing whatever mm. the form. Um, theater is extremely difficult to write for well because the number of tools or means you have to tell your story are extremely restrained. All you really have is whatever the characters or actors say and whatever visually is going on. You don't have any interiority. You can't, you know, it's very hard to manage time. There's, there's a lot of very specific challenges to that form. Um, and I think that's the real reason. The other thing is that it's an incredibly difficult business to break into. Um, and so I think that there's a certain way that it discourages people and they might choose other, other forms to write in. Yeah. Well, this week, it's my turn to remind our listeners about the importance of Slate Plus. If you enjoy this podcast and the rest of Slate's journalism, please consider supporting us by joining Slate Plus. And those of you who are already members will hear a little more from Isaac's conversation with Ayad Akhtar, one of the benefits of membership. And you can get two weeks free right now. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Isaac's conversation with Ayad Akhtar. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ayad Akhtar, thank you so much for joining us on Working today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I thought we could start at a very basic level. Do you have a like daily writing practice? And is that practice the same when you're between projects versus when you're working on a specific thing? If I'm writing actively, it's nine to two every day at my desk. I, I mean, I the thing that I always say about it is that uh, I need to be somewhere specific at a specific time so that the muse knows where to find me, so to speak. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to get a lot of work done, but if if I'm not there and I'm not regular with it, then I don't know that I'm ever going to put myself in a situation where I can get work done. Um, my fiance, who is not a writer, or at least has not been a writer most of her life, well, when we first started living together, she said to me, I, I, I'm shocked at how little a writer actually writes. I, I watch you do nothing all day. <laughs> you sit on the couch. You sit at your desk. What are you doing there? I mean, you're not doing anything. I was like, well, I'm waiting, I'm waiting to write. <laughs> yeah, so much of the writing process is not writing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's, I think she finally sort of like really gets, she gets the good side of that, but she sort of saw the bad side of it first. But, um, but and, and then in between projects, it's really complicated because I, I find that if I can keep that nine to two rhythm, and even though I don't have anything to work on, I will generally tend to start working on something sooner. But I'll often sort of like fall away from it and I'll do other stuff in that time because I don't have a specific thing that I'm working on. So yeah, it's, I, that's the challenge is to keep the nine to two uh, consecrated. Are there particular rituals you have? Is there like a way you like to start your writing day other than sitting down at the desk? Yeah, I mean, I pretentiously, you know, but it's not for pretentious reasons, but pretentiously read Shakespeare every morning. I mean, that's, and, and, and there is a real reason for it. I find that if I spend some time working through sort of Shakespearean verse, it, it, it can be as little as a sonnet. Uh, if I spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes working on that, the language moving through my brain is a lot more developed and a lot richer and more unexpected than if I don't do that. If I don't do that, it's like not having had my cup of coffee, if you will. So in Homeland Elegies, your new novel, the character who shares your name, (laughs) but is not necessarily you, has a very involved daily writing practice involving a lot of journals, both of what happens in his day and his dreams. Um, Are those techniques that you yourself have tried or are they pulled from someone you know or... 
So I have been, uh, there have been periods where I really do do that pretty regularly. And then there's periods where I don't do it at all. And then my journal is full of, well, I should have done this today, but I didn't, or mm-hmm. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then I don't do it tomorrow. And, um, but, but I do keep a pretty, I have in the past and, uh, you know, I still do sometimes. I think that's probably the, the sort of theme of this, of all my answers that I do it sometimes and I don't do it others. Yeah, of course. Um, is, is the, is the dream journals and, you know, sort of, I started keeping track of my dreams in my early twenties and I, you know, I was waking up every 45 minutes every night writing a dream down and that lasted for about four years. So I've got literally thousands and thousands of dreams in boxes. Um, and and this is the technique where you tape a pencil to your finger and that, uh, sort of wakes you up. Yes, right? I did. Because I tried I, it. I tried you it. You did? After I read that section of your book, I tried it. I was like, well, I got to see if this works. <laughs> and I got the worst night's sleep of my life, and it totally worked. Yeah. It, it was a crayon in my case because yeah. oh it was my child. You know, that's what I had. <laughs> that's what I had that could fit to my finger. But right, I did try you it. Because you don't even have to use uh, that crayon to write. It's just the fact that it's there that reminds you that you're going to, rem- that you're going to, you know, recall it. Um, yeah, I, I've used that technique, but, but it's most, you know, mostly that was something that a mentor of mine told me about and which he used to do is Grotowski actually told me to do this. And, um, and, and he used to do it. I did try it a few times, but it turned out I didn't really need to because just the fact of wanting to remember them. Made wait, me wait, it was them. Grotowski that told you to do yeah. this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. Grotowski was very insistent with me that, um, the one thing I could do while I was working with him was that I could really pay attention to my unconscious and that he and I could have conversations about what was coming up, not just from like a personal point of view, but like how the unconscious works, how dreams, images, and language work in a different way in a dream, sort of dream reality than they do in daily reality. And for our listeners who don't know who Grotowski is. Uh, could you sort of summarize him and, and explain sure. how you came to study with him? Yeah. Grotowski was one of the great theater directors of the 20th century. You know, sort of generally speaking, I think folks tend to say Stanislavski, Bertolt Brecht, um, Vesvolod Meyerhold, and Jerzy Grotowski, and sometimes they sub out Peter Brook for one of those people, right? But he was really one of the pioneers in the, in the 50s and late 50s and 60s of a kind of intense theater that he called a poor theater, which was not, there wasn't any lighting and there weren't really costumes. It was really just the actor sort of creating the reality out of their own being. And he was kind of legendary, kind of cult-like figure who then disappeared from the theater and stopped doing shows in the 70s and started working with actors on these techniques. You know, he used to say that um, he and his actors had figured out how to live fully on stage, how they... They'd figured out how to get to the top of Mount Everest while they were on stage, but the challenge was now how to do that in life. So using a lot of uh, performance techniques, in some cases ancient performance techniques, to awaken higher states of consciousness, if you will. And um, most famously, at least most pertinently in my case, for most Americans, he was the subject of my dinner with Andre because uh, that movie that you know Andre Gregory and Wally Shawn made where Andre is uh, working with this Polish director in a Polish forest and he's having all these amazing, almost hallucinogenic experiences. So I, I, I studied with, the, with Jerzy. I worked with Jerzy as assistant um, for a year, 1993, in Italy. Um, I got, met him through Andre Gregory, actually. Andre came to uh, Brown 
to give a talk, and I asked him, I asked Andre if he would put me in touch with, with Jerzy Grotowski, and um, he did. Well, you definitely, like, took your shot, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, the wild thing about that is that, you know, when you went to go study with Jerzy Grotowski, were you thinking, I'm going to be a playwright novelist at that no. moment, or were you <laughs> thinking, I'm going to be an actor and director? Or, or I wanted to be I, a director. You know, I had I had studied directing in college. I directed a couple, you know, directed three plays, and, and, I, and I was rehearsing for, you know, these student actor co- colleagues of mine. First play, I, I rehearsed for five weeks, my second play, I rehearsed for for two months, and all the all the people on campus said, "What the hell are you doing with these actors for two months?" I said, "It's not enough time. It's not enough time." Stanislavski you know? rehearsed uh, Hamlet for three years. Yeah, Grotowski rehearsed Apocalypsis Configurus for for two years. Right, right. You know his great production. So, I guess I bring this up because you know you went to go study one thing and you made yeah. a life doing another thing, but yeah. the lessons from the first carried over into the second, this really oh. profound way I- instead of, sure. you know, you're necessarily going and getting like writing training. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I think if you had told me when I was either in Italy or had just come back from Italy and it was, you know, I was in Paris for a while. I spent a little time at Arne Munishkin's Théâtre du Soleil and a little bit of time with Peter Brook. And then, uh, came to New York and I started working with Andre. I was teaching acting at that time with him. And uh, if you told me that that time that I was going to become a Broadway playwright, I would have told you put a bullet in my head right now. <laughs> I, I because Broadway is the enemy, right? <laughs> yeah. Broadway is everything exactly. that needs to get torn down. Exactly. You know, the commercialization and sort of, you know, $150 tickets. And, you know, that was just not my jam. It was not what it was all about. But it's interesting that I think you sort of get out of your own way. I had lots of ideas about what I thought I wanted to do. And it turned out that this kind of weird combination of very high and very low is actually where it's, it's very natural for me. So moving on to the to the book specifically, to Homeland Elegies, wh- where did that novel begin for you? What was the germ of the idea that led to it? It was a poem by Leopardi. Uh, I was in Rome. My mother had recently passed away. My father was, uh, you know, drinking himself into a stupor uh, every day. He was five vodkas in by 11 a.m. And uh, he had become impossible to sort of like to be around and to connect with. And Trump was president. And I had been through this experience in New York of having written a play, which I hoped was going to illuminate some of the ideological changes around money and incentive that um, would help us all understand a little bit better, maybe the better questions to ask about why Trump was now our president, only to have it, for the most part, at least by the New York critics, have those questions summarily missed in some really profound way. And that felt, frankly, insulting and felt like it was this thing of, you know, why aren't you writing about Muslims? And because that's what I allegedly have been writing about. So there was all of this stuff that was kind of swirling inside me, both both personal and political. And I ended up in Rome uh, in a kind of a need to sort of get out of the country. It was right at the beginning of 2018. And I had jet lag at the American Academy of uh, in Rome where I was staying, went down into the library and found this book of poems by Leopardi. And I read the first poem, which is called To Italy. And it's really an exhortation to his fellow citizens, fellow countrymen to remember, you know, where they come from and what they are made of. And I remember thinking at the time, um, would it be possible to write 
in a vo- to have a voice to find a voice that could i don't know sort of bring together the entirety of what i imagined the american population to be the citizenry my fellow citizens could i address them all as a whole and when i remember going to sleep that night you know thinking what a grandiose thought but I woke up the next morning and there was the first sentence of this book was already sort of beginning to, you know, it had already started to form itself. And I wrote the overture within the next two and a half days and I was off and running. I didn't really know what it was I was writing, but I knew the voice was coming through me. Yeah. How did you find that voice that was going to address the country? Like you think about like Dos Passos's USA trilogy where he finds a bunch of different voices and he fragments them and it's arranged in this way. But here yeah. it is, you know, a first person that is yeah. addressing the country. I mean, it sounds like some of it was intuitive, but how, how did you totally. find that voice? It was totally intuitive, but I think it was, um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I I, I guess I imagined that I didn't feel antagonistic toward my fellow countrymen, countrywomen. I felt in solidarity, and I felt that something had happened to our country, and it was not something that had happened to me. It was something that had happened to all of us, and it wasn't about certain people getting excluded. It was about something that had taken place that had affected every American. And so it was, I suppose, and and in a way, the argument of that overture is, yes, uh, I'm a Muslim American writer, and it's been hard to be Muslim post 9-11, but even that didn't prepare me to understand what had really happened to this country. It was only when I started to see clearly what was happening to all of us that I started to understand what had changed. So... You have this idea, this voice is coming to you. You're writing it down. It sounds exciting. Um, but you, I assume you're not quite sure that there's a novel there yet, right? I mean, I do you have projects that you abandon because you follow them and you hit a dead end? Or is there a certain point where it clicks over and you're like, ah, this is a book. This is a play. This is a whatever it is. I think in the last uh, 10 or so years, I have been disciplined. You know, I've been writing for 35 And I think in the last 10 years, I've been disciplined enough to know that I've made a certain mistake very often, which is that I have tended to start writing too soon. And that when I write too soon, I will often discover that I don't really know what I'm writing about and that I'll get about a quarter of the way through something or half of the way through what I imagine it is, only to discover that there really isn't anything there, right? So this has happened to me so many times over the years that I don't do that. I just... I spend many, many months preparing the ground, preparing the bed, sort of, you know, finding out what's really going on, who the characters are, what these ideas are about, where they connect. And even if I haven't worked out an entire plot, I've spent sometimes up to 10 months just prepping, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I start writing, I know that there's something there to to keep moving through. But in this case, I think I was working so closely to myself, to my own experience. And also, I, you know, it's, it's hard to describe because I remember talking to my, my editor, Judy Klein, after I'd finished the book and I was, we were doing some edits and, and I told her I couldn't write any more material because I didn't know where the mind of this book had gone. It was when I finished it, it was gone. And mm-hmm. I didn't recognize anymore the person who had written it. And I did the language, the syntax, all of it, which was so effortless during the composition evaporated and I couldn't do the same things anymore. 
So in a weird way, I, 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 don't, I was inhabited by something, and I don't know what that thing is, but I do think that the sort of coherence or incoherence of the narrative through line is substantially a function of things that I have been thinking about for so many years. And I, I did worry at times that the book was going to feel too disjunctive or it was going to feel too incoherent. Or, but I always, I think from the, almost from the beginning, and certainly after I'd finished the Trump section and my, the section about my mother, I felt like, okay, there is an arc here and I know what that arc is because it largely echoes the arc both of myself and my parents' lives. I've just got to figure out a way to thread this and find a way through it. So it sounds like when you were done with it, it almost was like it was written by a, someone else. Totally. Did that make revising it easier or more of a challenge? Well, it, 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 it meant that, that I wasn't, there wasn't a substantial conversation about rewriting the book. <laughs> so I, it, it was going to be what it was going to be. And if my agents and editor didn't like it, then that was it. I wasn't going to rewrite it. Mm. Then I would, you know, I suppose figure out some other way to just get it out there and, li- and live with the consequences. It, it, uh, what I did do was it was a hundred, first draft is 122, 23,000 words. And then the final draft is about 108. So I cut 15,000 words out of it. Got but it. that was it. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Ayad Akhtar after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. We have a very special episode of Working coming soon. Isaac, Ruman, and I will address listener questions on work matters, big and small. If you need guidance or inspiration or anything else as profound or as silly as you like, please drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us an old-fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. Okay, let's rejoin Isaac's conversation with Ayad Akhtar. One of the just very basic creative decisions that shapes the whole book is that it's a novel that is written in the style of a memoir, right? It's written <laughs> like a memoir, but it's actually a novel. Yeah. Um, which I will say, you know, is a sort of, I found it a delightfully destabilizing reading experience. Um, but, but I was wondering. Some people are, some people have not been as delighted by the destabilization. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I, I'm wondering how you arrived at, at that decision and how you realized you were going to yeah. play with those two forms and kind of mix them up. I think it, it was it was so organic, and I, I really just sort of I haven't had a, a a real chance to sort of like explain this because a lot of times I sort of people ask me you know what was your intention then I kind of come up I, I give them the ex post facto decision that I made about how to talk about what I did as opposed to reflecting the actual process of how it happened, which was that I 
wrote this overture, which was in a voice that was so much like a certain kind of voice that I have, and that was using some facts of my life, but that was also twisting some things to make points, right? Like some of those places that my father loved to go are true, and some of them are not. We never went to Philadelphia, but my dad was obsessed with the Kennedy brothers, and we did go to Brookline. So it was like, you know, figuring out rhythmically how to sort of fit to, to complete a gesture or complete a phrase or complete a thought would sometimes require me concocting something to add to something that was true. And so the procedure of working from my own experience, using my own voice, but then adding details that were totally concocted for certain purposes, dramatic and otherwise, was something that I did from the get-go. And then I didn't stop myself from doing it as I went forward. And as I didn't stop myself from doing that, I started to realize it was not going to make sense for me to use another name because the guy won a Pulitzer and he's a playwright and he has a parent, father's a doctor, heart doctor, he's got a mother. Like all, it's all me. But uh, so much of this is also added, added sort of concoction. So then it's me, but it's not me, and I'll write it in memoir style, but I'll call it a novel, which will give me the freedom to write whatever I want. Mm. And in the process, people won't know the difference, and that's okay. It's not okay for my life, but it's okay for the book. Yeah, did you have any reluctance about that because people might confuse the the details with, with your life? Because, you know, like, I, I'm sure you get asked all the time, oh, is this true, is that true? All the time. Is this a stand-in for this person? Is that a... Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I worked through the dimensions of that question in thinking about my father. Because what I was doing to myself, I was also doing to my father. I was, I was concocting things in his life as well. And the record, you know, my, the father in the book is, doesn't have the name of my father. My own father's name was Masood, and the father in the book is Secunder. But it doesn't matter. People, you know, he was a heart doctor, the heart doctor in the book, and people just are going to assume. And I thought to myself, well, the purpose here is not for me to express something about myself, but for me to try to have a meaningful conversation about what's happened to the country. That's why I'm writing this book. And if, if my dad understood that, he wouldn't mind. But I think because I'm doing this to my father, I've got to do it to myself and I have to do it in a way that's not about making me look better. So there are some things in the book that are not true that may hurt the reader's opinion of me, but I had to put them in there in, almost in a, in a way to sort of balance this, this alchemy with my own father's image, you know? There's a kind of um, boomlet in what's called autofiction, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of people are starting to play around with the yeah. borders of fiction and autobiography, and and of course there's a rich tradition there. You know, there's Tim O'Brien stuff like that. Uh, are you a writer who seeks out other works that are doing something similar to yours? Were you like reading up on Ben Lerner or whatever, or or, or do you actually not want that when you're working on something? Well, I'd had I'd had some pretty some pretty strong examples in mind as I was working on the book. You know, and, and, and really the two biggies were, were Philip Roth and Marcel Proust. And the quality that I wanted to capture, which I think is present in Proust and in Roth, is this sense that the text feels like the extension of consciousness of the writer. That it doesn't feel like you're reading a text. It feels almost like you're, 
you've entered into the mind space of the writer himself. Himself in in this in this case, the masculinist performance is obviously part of part of the the mise en scène. So that is the, the to say his self makes sense. But I think that um, that was what the quality that I had been looking for that level of transparency where where it feels like thought and feeling are effortlessly unified in the way that they often feel when you're just in your own head. And so that is the reason why the memoir felt like the right form to ape, if you will. Right. You know, when you say that, it strikes me that even when we read autobiographical nonfiction, personal essays, memoirs, or whatever, the eye on the page is heavily constructed. It, it just, you know, it's always, even if the writer isn't thinking about it that self-consciously, it's still a constructive projection oh. of the self. And, you know, here you have this protagonist who shares your name and some but not all details <laughs> of your life, but he's also a character in a novel, right? right? And you also had this goal of wanting thought and feeling to kind of coexist in this way where we moved back and forth behind them. So how did you go about constructing the character of Ayad Akhtar? That's, I mean, it's a good question. I think I was always uh, cognizant of him being a character in a dramatic story. So as a playwright, I think I was always observing his behavior, even though it was being reported first person. And my parameters and my sort of gauges for being interested in his behavior were the same parameters and gauges that I use when I'm watching any one of my characters. And which would constantly push his behavior into more and more dramatic territory. That the actions had to be sharper and clearer and the reversals had to be stronger. He would say things in, in, in opposition to other characters that, you know, if I was feeling it more from the inside, I, I might have toned down or I might have pulled back. But again, I was, I was in a sense watching him on the stage of this, this story. Right, because in art, you know, experience is heightened. You know, yes, it's, right. it's that old that's thing right. of like, you know, you're not, you don't watch Hamlet make a salad or whatever. That's you right. Watch him that's grieving right. his father, right? Uh, it, it's interesting that you mentioned the stage because obviously you're also a very accomplished playwright on top of everything else. And you started in the theater. And when you're creating a character in the theater, there's someone else who's going to breathe that to yeah. life. Yeah. And you also don't have interiority at your disposal as right. one of the writer's tools. So is there a different process for you when you're crafting a character just out of dialogue than when we have access to their thoughts? I think so. I think that, um, you know, I often say that uh, writing a play is just a more demanding form. It's, it's, playwriting is more demanding because you have less latitude You've got to tell the story in dialogue, which means there's just certain things you'll never be able to do. Like yeah. you just, you can never get away with certain things. And that the, the, the level of attention to what the audience is gathering from what they're seeing is so high. You can get away within a novel sort of, you know, tilling the ground once and tilling it again and tilling it. They may get it the second time. They may get it the third time, but they'll get it at some point. Um, and I think in this particular instance, it was, I don't know, I guess it was the... Ma it was balancing this ever-present now with the construction of dramatic scenes, events, and circumstances that were going to continue to propel the story forward, even though it wasn't clear what the story was. Because it isn't always clear what the story is. A lot of times, you know, there is a, a way in which I was consciously borrowing from television episodic structure 
you know, each of the chapters is a self-enclosed narrative. And each of them um, has an A story that completes within the chapter and also moves a B story along from one chapter to the next. And so it's a kind of, you know, I, I've been joking, it's less autofiction and more a literary version of reality television, mm. which I think is, is true, even though I say it tongue in cheek. But I think that um, that movement forward, that sort of propelling the, the energy forward was something that I was attuned to dramatically. And so I was, I was using all the same tools that I use as a playwright to think about story in the book for that reason. Yeah, you know, I was very struck by the book's structure while reading it that, you know, there's a way in which, I mean, yes, because each of the chapters are self-contained, but it's also digressive and discursive in a way that feels um, somewhat essayistic rather than novelistic in terms of its progression. And I was wondering how you worked that structure out about which digressions go where, you know, where the mind is going at, at any given point. Do you do a lot of outlining in advance before you write or, or what? I do. And, and, and I did in some, like the very final chapter about my father's court case, uh, malpractice lawsuit, there was a fair bit of prep that was done for that chapter. Um, for example, the Asha chapter about uh, syphilis and, uh, and my mother's death that happened very organ and 9/11. That happened very organically. But it turned out that at that point, it was clear there were certain dissonances that needed to start moving into resolution. And so the arc, I had turned the halfway mark of the book, and I knew where I had a sense. I knew that the final chapter would be about my father, and that was going to be long, about a hundred pages. And that between now and then, I had certain things I needed to do before I got there. So there was a lot of sort of conscious awareness of what digressions are helpful and what digressions are not. You know, the 9-11 sequence, that 3,000-word sequence where he recounts uh, the day of 9-11 to this Pakistani-American lover that he has, um, that was unexpected. And, And yet I had been accumulating data, stories, textures, anecdotes, for 20 years about that thinking that someday I would actually write about 9-11. And then I didn't realize that it was going to be in this book and it would be at that point. Hmm. You know, we're so often told not to write about things that recently happened to us or about current events in, yeah. you know, art, in our art. We're not <laughs> yeah. supposed to do that. Art is in heavy quotes for listeners who can't see my hands here. Yeah. Um, and of course, your book is doing both very directly. It's very, very directly about now. And the present moment is always changing. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's changed is with any luck, the presidency of Donald Trump is is ending now. Yeah. Um, is it weird to contemplate your book in relationship to the ever-changing now? Is that a, what, what is that experience like for you? You know, I think I, I've never been daunted about writing from the present because of my early obsession and fascination with Brecht. And, 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 you know, Brecht rewrote his plays in the afternoon based on what was happening in the street so that every night they were different. I think that there's something about that. You know, Shakespeare in many ways is doing the same thing. He's commenting so clearly on events in the, politi- the politics of the moment. But in the case of Shakespeare, even more than Brecht, you know, his treatment of those particulars 
touches to some universal, and so we don't really even need to know those reference anymore. Uh, I, I don't know whether that is the case or not with, with my work. I mean, I think oddly Donald Trump finally being defeated uh, feels to me like the appropriate, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a belatedness in the book, a kind of a mourning of a passing of, of a moment, of an America, of a, of a vision. And I think that, that Trump completes that in a way. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, it just feels to me like this moment uh, is really the right moment to read the book. In a way, it was almost too close earlier because Trump is such an important sort of muse, a spiritual muse of the book, that it's only with a little distance from him that I think the book can really exist on its own. But I don't know how that'll feel in a few years, you know. It's well, we, we can't know. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. Well, Ayad Akhtar, thank you so much for coming on Working and sharing oh your creative gosh. process with us. Oh, so much fun. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Isaac, early on in that wonderful conversation, there was a moment where I could kind of hear you leaving your body when Ed mentioned having spent a year working with Jerzy Grotowski. Um, you and Ed did explain who Grotowski was, but I'm still craving a little bit more tea. Specifically, I want to know what you, a man who has just finished writing about Konstantin Stanislavski and the method, feel when Ayad talks about having worked with him. Um, was Grotowski in the habit of working with young Americans fresh out of college? I don't think so. I mean, certainly that somehow Ayad convinced Andre Gregory to, you know, phone Grotowski, <laughs> I assume. I, I don't quite know, um, is I think how he wound up there. You know, it's not like there was yeah. an internship you could just apply <laughs> for on the not yet really existing consumer internet in the early 1990s. Um, so Grotowski is one of the most important theater directors and theorists of the 20th century. Ayad names the others over the course of the interview, right? You have Stanislavski, you have Meyerhold, you have Brecht, you have Grotowski. There's also Artaud, who is not really a director, but a theorist in there. And at its time, Grotowski's ritualistic, actor-focused, uh, quote-unquote, poor theater was massively influential. I mean, most famously, it was very influential on Peter Brook. Murat Saad is an adaptation of Grotowski's techniques to a kind of different kind of theater. As Ayan mentioned, he left making theater to kind of become a guru. He's the guru in the woods that Andre Gregory has studied with in My Dinner with Andre. Um and because of that, I forgot he lived that long, to be completely <laughs> honest. So part of why my soul left my body at that moment was like, oh, my God, that's right. He was still alive at this moment. So, <laughs> you know, that there is a connection still to that legacy. Mm. Um, 
of someone who is not of the eldest generation of theater, like Peter Brook, who's remarkably still with us, Andre Gregory, Wally Shawn, people like that, uh, was just incredible to me. It's it's a lost it's a lost legacy that we have this connection to, and and it amazing. was just it was amazing to hear. So you and Ed talked a lot about the autofictional nature of his most recent book, Homeland Elegies. For those of us who haven't yet read that novel, could you give some examples of how that plays out? I mean, and as a reader, were you always clear what was fiction or indeed that he was pulling on threads from his own life story? I mean, I wouldn't know that his father was a heart doctor. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the joy for me uh of reading the book it's a really destabilizing experience to read a novel that's written like a memoir it's just Mm -hmm. a really you're just you're you sort of don't have the same formal reference points that you're used to and then at the same time you know the narrator is explaining himself in the world in this very direct way that nonfiction does that fiction normally finds kind of in bad taste or something and tries (laughs) to avoid you know often in a first person novel the character is not aware that they are telling a story to anyone you know, there's often this sort of weird fiction that you're kind of in their head. That's, you know, that's not always true. But that's often true here. That's negated. It's like the author's name is Ayad Akhtar. The character's name is Ayad Akhtar. And he is talking directly to you in a very, you know, pointed way. And so I made a decision early on that part of the artistic project of the book was that ambiguity between what was real and what was not. And that it was kind of betraying the book to try to find out what the truth was. Hmm. That the book is um, taking place in and trying to explain a moment in which we are often unsure what is true and what is not, in which our president is constructing a sort of parallel society built on lies. Mm. And that living in that discomfort was part of what the book was asking of me as a reader and what mm. I owed it. Wow. That kind of reminds me, um, I've mostly come across this with poets. You know, poets write their work, they publish their work. If anybody reads it, um, they'll often assume that the person in the poem or the maybe there's just the voice in the poem is that writer and I've known um you know poets people come I'm approaching poets often saying are you okay you know do you do you need help I didn't realize you were and like it's it's not me um and 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 it is just shocking how often um as readers we feel that desire to to associate the writer uh, with what they produce, and so for him to kind of put his name and um, you know to tell us these are some things that are very similar uh, to my real life, I can see that that would be um, the word that you use, destabilizing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that art can give us if we're open to it is a feeling of deep uncertainty, mm-hmm. of just <laughs> dwelling and not knowing the answer, not knowing what's right, not knowing what's real. And um, I think that's very scary. I mean, I think that's very anxiety producing, right? It's that whole thing of like, when I get out of bed in the morning, how do I know there's a floor there to meet me and I'm not going to fall to my death? Um, uh, And so, you know, I understand the impulse to want to assume that it's real, to want to assume that portrayal is endorsement, which is a common fallacy with art, you know, to give another example. Um, But I think that if we can work to hold off on those impulses. Um, I, I think that there's something else that we can gain from art that's really quite wonderful. Yeah, I loved hearing about uh, his fiance's response to his work routine, that it seems like there's a lot of doing nothing in the writer's life. Um, 
but it also feels like part of the way that working from home has allowed us to see what our partners or our roommates do all day, which has disappointed some and impressed others. <laughs> That's really a great point. You know, and I should say I- I'm in the opposite boat where the, v- the person saying, God, you did nothing today <laughs> is me to myself. Oh. And my wife, who has a white collar corporate job and is in meetings all day and works her ass off and never takes breaks and everything like that, is often the one saying to me, no, this is part of your process. You know, this wow. is not not doing this. Watching a movie that's related to the book is part of your process or, you know, thinking is part of your process. Going on a walk is part of your process. She's the one who has to remind me of that. And it's something I'm really, really grateful for. Man, um, you got a good one. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's good because in myself, there's the there's that other voice, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I've had to learn, particularly during writing this book, is respecting the parts of the process that don't look like writing or aren't immediately productive and to know that those are important and to have faith that that's going to work out. And that's that's hard. That's that's an ongoing process for me. And I think that that's not limited to creative disciplines. You know, lots of our listeners do not are, are, are working in other fields and everything like that. And I think the terror of downtime is something we have to combat really actively because it is really important to give ourselves space to think to for the subconscious parts of our brain to make connections we wouldn't otherwise do. That's important in, in any workplace in any job it's not just about art and i really believe that there's this kind of war on idleness going on right now or a war on downtime that's really mistaken that that you know whatever those productivity gains supposedly are there's a cost to them that is really unfortunate yeah hard agree and i also think that uh, in this country you know there's a I know, a dislike, I guess, or, or a sort of a, a meanness with vacations. And vacations... The Protestant so, work ethic, right? Yeah. They're so necessary. They're so important. People, take vacations. If you're in a job that gives you vacations, take them. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you a Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. But more important, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Ayad Akhtar, to Whitney Tezzi, who provided valuable research, and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with musicians Suzzy Roach and Lucy Wainwright Roach. Until then, get back to work. Unless you need to take a break to allow your mind to kind of do its own thing. In which case, don't. <laughs>